In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So I'm thinking it must have been a bad hair day in Matthew's house. Uh, the day he edited this 24th chapter of his gospel, um, we call it sometimes the apocalyptic discourse. And it, it reads a little like a Stephen King novel. Um, the, the, the discourse gets off to a negative start. Uh, actually, before our passage, Jesus and the disciples are coming out of the temple, and, and Jesus says to them, um, look, not one stone of this sacred building will be left on top of another. And then they're walking across the Mount of Olives. He says to those same followers, soon there will be rumors of wars and there will be famines and earthquakes, the sun and the moon no longer giving light, stars falling from the sky. Sounds like the most recent report on climate change which of course only the best scientists in the world have predicted and our current administration has chosen to ignore. But then the events described in our passage today go further. No one knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. Not the angels, not even the Son of Man. Only God knows. Only God. Robert Schuller, Norman Vincent Peale, they don't know what to do with these kind of passages. There's no positive thinking here. Jesus is dead serious, warning us that the kingdom is coming and it will be clear when he comes who is ready and who is not as judgment is cast. So each year on this first Sunday of the Advent season, the church assigns some apocalyptic passage, something threatening and stark that is shot right across our bow, designed to shake us out of our complacency and to force us to consider again how things will come to an end. Advent literally means the coming or the approaching. And it is, admittedly, a kind of quirky season. Um, it puts us out of sorts as Christians with the whole rest of our society where it has already been Christmas, all the way back to Halloween. Even here in our sanctuary, you feel that tension. We decorate for Christmas to satisfy our own cultural expectations. And yet, if you listen to most of the music today, you will note it is in a minor key. It is still begging to be resolved. And if you listen, the, the lessons over the next few weeks are about waiting and preparation and staying awake and repentance. So why do we recall these texts about the end of time. Why get off to such a glum start when we know tis the season to be merry? And the answer, I think, is that knowing how things will end determines how you will live in between, how you will live today. If only we had known is one of the most 
melancholy, one of the most bittersweet phrases in all of the English language. If only I had known there was going to be a pop quiz, I would have studied last night. If only we had known there would be another shooting, we would have canceled our trip to Vegas. We wouldn't have gone out to the bar in San Bernardino, or Orlando, or, or, or. If only we had known mom was that bad, we would have left earlier and gotten to the hospital. If only we had known. And that, of course, is the heart of the issue in the three illustrations that Jesus gives us of what people were doing at that critical time. He recalls the days of Noah when, obviously, the waters were rising and yet everyone was acting as though nothing was wrong. It all looked the same, one day after another. If only we'd known. On that day, two men are working in a field. One is taken, the other is left. Two women are grinding meal, and one is taken, the other is left. It all looked the same, if only we had known. And then there's the story of this thief who breaks into the house, stealing everything. If only the owner of the house had known, he would have been ready. But really, who could have known? You see, the issue is that nobody knew. And so when the day came, what day it was, was a surprise. It's the end, you know, that makes what's going on now have meaning. So Tom Long, who teaches preaching down at Emory University, describes how things change in value once we know the limits within which we are living. So he says, if the dam 20 minutes upstream breaks, then the Rembrandt hanging on the wall is suddenly less valuable than the rubber raft up in the attic. It is our awareness of the shortness of time and our accountability within that that sets a value on how we live today. Knowing what lies ahead focuses, focuses our thoughts on what we should treasure and what we should not today. We value life because it has an ending. We value our most precious relationships because they don't go on forever. My colleague John Walton um, talks about a friend of his who is in the final stages of cancer. This is what he writes. He says, the doctors have said there is medically no more room to maneuver. So it seemed best to have hospice care take over. At times like that in life, watching and waiting is bittersweet. Some people might have gone home from the hospital and gotten in bed and turned out the lights, kept the curtains drawn, and never looked forward to another day. 
but not my friend. She decided there were some things that she needed to do. Clean out the closets, for one thing. Get one more look at a beach and walk its sandy shore. Have tea with her daughter at the All-American Girl Store. Enjoy a luxurious stay in a hotel for a night with her husband. Spend time with family and friends whenever she is able to summon the strength. And John asks, what does it mean to stay awake and keep watch if it is not to live each day thankful for each breath and if, as if every moment counted? In fact, all things have value because they are limited. And time, not wealth, is our most precious commodity. Our pitiful illusion is that we have all the time in the world. But that is not so. So be ready, Jesus says, because the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. So, how do you prepare for an hour whose very nature is constituted by surprise? And the answer to that, it seems to me, can only be explored if we accept the fact that the final hour could be any hour, and that you and I have no control over that. Only God knows. Only God. So it is not which hour that we are to discern in order to get ready. So just put that out of your mind. Don't go looking for spaceships traveling behind comets. Do you remember all the wasted energy at the turn of the millennium? Y2K was going to be the end of civilization as we know it. No one knows, Jesus says. The important thing is to discern how to live until that hour, in the meantime, to live faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully, loving and serving and watching for signs of his presence. Ted Wardlaw Wardlow is the uh, president of, uh, of Ashland Theological Seminary, and he talks about uh, a well-known African-American pastor uh, of a church in New York City. Um, the church is uh, located in one of the worst areas of the city. He says, from the steeple of that church, you can get a bird's-eye view of pawn shops and boarded-up storefronts and roach-infested mom-and-pop grocery stores and pimps and prostitutes selling their wares up and down the street. He says a lot of churches have folded or left the area, but this church just hangs in there, keeping watch, staying alert as if every moment mattered. They have organized a, local, uh, a locally-owned bank um, they have started latchkey programs for children. They have organized Bible studies in high-rises. 
A newspaper reporter was interviewing the pastor hoping to do a story about this church. Sure, said the reporter as he tried to frame his next question. Sure, you're doing great stuff, but it's hard to see what difference any of this is making. What enables you and your folks to keep going? The pastor said, well, we've read the Bible. (laughs) And we know how it ends. We aren't at the end yet, he said. But we know how it ends. And that's what makes the difference. We know how it ends. It ends with God. Today, tomorrow, your life, my life, all of eternity for that matter, it all ends with God. Sure, there are lots of days where it looks like it doesn't end with God. 60 million refugees wandering this earth with no place to call home. Arrogant world leaders who are actually talking about starting up a nuclear war again or a nuclear arms race. There are fires burning out of control out west and floods out east, not to mention our own woes. Thousands of layoffs leading up to Christmas. Really? Illnesses in our own family. A winter that sort of intercepted what might have been a beautiful fall. (laughs) What an awkward and out-of-joint time we live in. It is easy to be discouraged. It's almost like reading a bad novel. Some people despair. Some live in fear. Many are anxious about what is going to happen next. But others stay awake and are watchful and are courageously hopeful, looking to make a difference looking to give an accounting of their lives. And that may seem like an unsettling prospect as well, this idea that we all have to give an accounting of who we are and what we are about. So many of us have been raised with this image of a fear-filled God, a God who is like a principal in our high school waiting for us to just come down to his office and But as unsettling as that may seem, there is something worse. And that is that we might never be held to account for who or what we are. The highest form of contempt, after all, is not to judge someone, but to ignore them. To hold that other to no moral measure at all. That is not justice. What Jesus wants us to understand is that our lives are important. The good news is that our choices and our actions, be they for good or not, really do make a difference. But even better news is that this one who will come someday is the same one who came one day, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The one who one day hung on a cross 
taking in the worst that the world could ever do and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The same Tom Long tells about a time in his earlier days when he was a paid court reporter for a group that was monitoring racial justice in the courts in Georgia. He spent day in and day out observing the proceedings of criminal cases. And he says the question that was most on the minds of the defendants who were coming before that court was not so much who will the public defender be or who will be the prosecuting attorney. It was not about who will be chosen for the jury or even what kind of evidence would be presented against you. No, all of these, he says, paled in comparison to the most compelling concern discussed among those prisoners in that holding cell. What, there, what was of most interest to them, what raised the greatest fear, was the question of who would be the judge. For it was known that a hanging judge would oversee a harsh trial and would give a heavy penalty, while another judge could be counted on to weigh all of the extenuating circumstances of the case and sometimes be lenient in his verdict. Matthew wants us to understand that we will be held accountable for what we have done in this world, individually and collectively, for good or not. But even more, he wants to assure us that on that day, when the door to the judge's chamber is opened, the one who comes to pass judgment is none other than the one who sits at the right hand of God, who already intercedes for us. Advent is the church's reminder that the days are short. The time is near when the kingdom of God will come, which is why we begin at this table, where we remember that the one who is coming is gracious and kind and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He invites us to this table where all is known, and all is forgiven. And so I ask you, what if this was the day that the Lord comes? What would you do differently? And what would you do the same? And what will you do now that you know he is on his way? <laughs>